You're listening to the Operational Maritime Law Podcast, presented by the NATO Center of Excellence for Operations in Confined and Shallow Waters, headquartered in Kiel, Germany. To learn more, please visit coecsw.org. Hello, and welcome back to the Operational Maritime Law Podcast. We're going to pick up this episode right where we left off from in the last one. So for those of you who may have missed the first half, I'm speaking with David Hammond and Stephen Haynes from the NGO Human Rights at Sea about, you guessed it, human rights at sea. So far, we've managed to address some of the laws protecting the victims of human rights abuses at sea, some of the barriers to enforcing these laws, the Geneva Declaration on Human Rights at Sea, advocacy issues, as well as the differences between human rights law and international humanitarian law. And in this next bit, we'll learn a bit about some of the misnomers regarding illegal migration, what can be done about the plight of abandoned seafarers, considerations for military legal advisors when operations come up against potential human rights abuses, and much, much more. This was a super fun and really enlightening conversation, as they always are with these two gentlemen. So without further ado, here's the final part of my interview with David Hammond and Professor Stephen Haynes. The topic of migration and migrants has come up a couple of times so far. And so I, I think we could just dig into that a little bit more because this is an issue that whether one is paying close attention to the goings on at sea or not, most people are, are certainly at least aware of uh, the fact that there is a migrant crisis going on in many parts of the world, in North America, in the English Channel, in the Mediterranean. And it is not a problem that is going away anytime soon. So just for the purposes of being better equipped to make sense of what we're seeing in the news on a regular basis. Can you talk about some of the principal legal challenges to addressing irregular migration at sea? Uh, I can I can immediately come up with, um, I mean, the, the, the problem that we've been facing, the British government's been facing recently in relation to irregular migration across the channel from France and Belgium and elsewhere on the continent across to the United Kingdom is a fascinating one. I mean, it, it, it's political dynamite in the UK, as you can probably imagine, or you're probably aware. And and uh, government ministers have tried to stop this by suggesting that both the border force and the Royal Navy force people back to the continent. I mean, it, this is a really problem. This is a really, really difficult problem because... I mean, the, the, the British press, for example, almost always refers to these irregular migrants as illegal migrants. Actually, I mean, I, I looked into this a little while ago and I discovered that actually they're not illegal migrants because in order to be illegal, they've got to be breaking some law. The migrants themselves are not breaking any law at all. At no point, even up to the point at which they set foot on a British beach, are they breaking the law. They're not breaking British law, which is why very few of them, if ever, have, have actually been prosecuted. There is no law there that says that it's illegal to be present in UK territorial waters. You've got to subject yourself to the immigration control procedures. But if as long as you do that and then claim asylum, for example, you're not doing anything illegal. And you have legal rights, which unfortunately, some people, a lot of public opinion in the UK um, is not aware of. It's not fully aware of the of the difficult problems associated with dealing dealing with that cross-channel irregular migration problem. And as you quite rightly say, James, this problem isn't going to go away. The global population is increasing 
year on year quite significantly. And people move. People have always moved. But of course, there's so many more billions of people around now that people movement is becoming really, really significant and very, very obvious uh, in so many different ways. And the law, in some ways, I could say, I mean, a, a student asked me this question the other day, um, you know, the, 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 um, uh, the law relate, re regulating refugees, for example, and the law of the sea, in many ways, these, these longstanding legal instruments are incompatible with each other. So there is an actual international law problem of, of, of the law itself being confusing and almost being unenforceable in any case, because clearly if somebody sets foot on a British beach, they've got the right under the Refugee Convention to claim asylum. And if they claim asylum, the United Kingdom is responsible for ensuring that that asylum claim is properly investigated. And if if it proves to be valid, they are account they accorded refugee status. Um, so the, the the refugee convention and the British law giving 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 um, uh, 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 enacting it is going to come into conflict with the political desire to prevent migrants coming across the Channel from France. I mean, it's really really difficult. And I, I, if I knew the answer to this problem. Uh, I would probably be um, a, a, a very wealthy and influential government advisor. I don't know the answer. It's a difficult one, and it's not going to go away. And you mentioned it already, but there is this beautiful quote in the Geneva Declaration, and I'll just quote it here because I, I think it sums up the, the situation very well. It says, although the majority of these people are themselves doing nothing unlawful, it is common to see them referred to as illegal migrants. So we've established they're, they're doing nothing wrong up to the, the process as it exists is totally lawful for someone to show up on British territory. And this is the same in the United States, by the way, you can show up on territory uh, and then you just have to submit yourself to uh, customs and law enforcement. That is actually how the process is supposed to work. That is not to say, though, that this doesn't involve an element of criminality. Absolutely. I'm not saying that. I mean, there is there is there is a very serious element of criminality, particularly with the um, the, the, the criminal gangs that are taking advantage of these vulnerable people who are wanting to move for whatever reason, uh, there is criminal activity going on um, on the on the continent that's actually resulting in these people being put to sea in small boats and finding themselves in very vulnerable situations as a consequence. So yes, there is criminal. There is an element of criminality there, um, but it's not necessarily the migrants themselves who are responsible for break breaking any law. They're not necessarily breaking any law. David, you had something to add as well. Yeah, I was going to say from our organisation's perspective, in 2016 we helped established uh, or helped establish a German-based NGO operating the Mediterranean called Sea Watch. Uh, in fact, um, yesterday they announced uh, their Sea Watch Vessel 5, which um, uh, is the fifth generation, a, an ocean going um, vessel capable of taking significant numbers of migrants on board. And what we've seen since the start of the NGOs actually coalescing in the Mediterranean is a slow professionalization, but also a vilification of. Um, the the NGO community being seen as a taxi service and therefore a pull factor. Um, now, there is the quandary that we've got as human rights um, individuals and defenders is that um, if we don't do something uh, whilst people are at sea, their lives are in danger, um, and of course the 
requirement under safety of life at sea, but also UNCLOS itself to um, to rescue people for those people in distress. And we don't do anything, then we're, we're also, in our minds as human rights defenders, complicit in their demise. Um, they are also, the majority, uh, and I spent a, a nearly two years in Mali in Central Africa with the European Union, um, operating and, and, and training IHL and, and also undertaking migrant um, investigations uh, with those people moving up through uh, Mali and into Algeria and up to Libyan coastline. Um, all, pretty much all of them were looking for a better life because it, the lives where they were coming from was, was not as good as they perceived it would be within Europe. And it goes back to Stephen's point of an ever-growing global population, the um, International Organization of Migration talking around uh, at this moment, 80 million people move on the move. That's the same number of people displaced in the Second World War as well, um, in, in general figures. Um, and that's only going to continue. So from a human rights uh, NGO's perspective, we have to do something. But um, we're, we're, we'll be criticised if we do do something, we'll be criticised if we don't do something. Um, but if you are going to, to finish the point, if you are going to take the view that human rights, fundamental human rights of the individual um, uh, are, are applicable, which we say obviously is, and we would hope that every NATO state, member state, has the same view, um, then you've got to step in and do something. And that's what the Italian Coast Guard did in the early years very, very well. And of course, now we have Frontex and there's a whole conversation around that as well. Um, but but it is a it is a real challenge for NGOs not to be criminalised um, for upholding international human rights standards, both at sea um, and indeed on land. Well, I mean, that is a that is a, a issue that I would be much more comfortable being on this uh, airing on the side of of helping than than harming. So I, I think you have set yourself up in a position to uh, to make a very strong case for for doing the right thing. Uh, I don't want to dwell on this issue too much longer, but I do want to address uh, how this is being reported. And Stephen made a great point that a huge problem with illegal migration is the way that it is reported. And so I wonder, as lawyers, as people who deal with this on a regular basis, are there any other specific uh, ways you see this being reported on that you want to address and kind of correct for listeners out there? Not from a political perspective, from a from a human rights uh, at sea perspective. Yeah, from from a human rights perspective, uh, the the reporting is fundamental to that point I made earlier about awareness and education. Uh, without which you can't have evidence for policy and legislative change. Um, the, one of the biggest challenges we have is corroborating our evidence that comes into us. And that is actually one of the reasons we, we are pleased to have our ongoing relationship with NATO, uh, as well as um, European forces as well, under the European banner. Uh, but it's also critical that there is an exchange of information corroboration and um, we actually work in in partnership where we're able to um, because that public reporting of cases um, where things are things where things are right where things are wrong is critical we we have got to avoid the narrative that everything is good or everything is bad and we've got to avoid the narrative criminalization 
and we've got to avoid the narrative uh, that some people may well um, seek solace in that all the migrants stroke refugees coming across have some kind of terrorist affiliation or criminality uh, focus. Um, again, that might be seen as quite a liberal view amongst the conservatives on the uh, on the webinar. But the reality is that if we do not take that more liberal view of the application of human rights, the reporting of abuses, um, then we get into uh, autocratic environments. And of course, we're already seeing globally um, w what that then develops into, um, particularly in uh, Eastern Europe at the moment. So another issue related to being abandoned at sea uh, as a migrant is uh, being abandoned at sea as a seafarer. I know Human Rights at Sea does quite a lot in the area of trying to promote this, not only awareness of stranded seafarers, but also trying to alleviate some of the suffering that's being caused to them. Can you give us a quick overview of what this problem is for people who may be unfamiliar with it? Sure. So abandonment of seafarers is a deliberate decision taken by the owner or through the management company to no longer support logistically um, or through pay the seafarers who are moving the goods from port A to port B to port C or, or on a transit. Um, it usually is triggered by the owner having limited financial capabilities, um, banks calling in loans, unable to pay those monies, and therefore they effectively ditch their assets. And those assets are the vessels and the crew on board. Um, and, and those vessels invariably go, go uh, alongside either in a port or are put in an inner out, outer um, anchorage at anchor. Um, and they're just left there. They don't have vittles. They don't have bunkers, fuel oil, for example, no fresh water, limited food supplies. Um, and the seafarers could leave the vessel. But if the seafarers do leave the vessel, um, then they lose their claim and their entitlement once that vessel is sold. So under the Maritime Labour Convention, after um, three months, um, of unpaid wages, uh, or, or sorry, the Maritime Labour Convention covers up to three months of unpaid wages, as does the insurers. But we have cases, and there are cases that the likes of uh, uh, the ITF, um, as the Federation for the Unions, um, ha have had up to four to five years of individuals abandoned. That's they haven't seen their families. There's been births, deaths, marriages within their family units, um, and they haven't left that vessel. And in some cases, they might be almost aground within a coastal state's waters, but they, for immigration purposes, can't go ashore either. And that's where you get welfare organisations stepping in, um, unions stepping in, and, and on the advocacy side, the likes of our NGO as well, to highlight this issue. But in short, can you imagine being left uh, with three or four fellow crew members on a rotting ship for four years and not being able to get off it? Um, that's not what most people would expect that a seafarer has to go through, but that is happening um, and we're at the highest levels of abandonment now globally. 
So I think this would be pretty shocking to people who have not been exposed to this problem before, that someone can be stranded literally just a few hundred yards off the coast of a, of a nation uh, and left to rot there on a rotting vessel for years at a time. It seems like the simple answer, right, would be, well, just get them off. But you mentioned there are complications to this. So I'm wondering, let's imagine a scenario where I'm on a, a Royal Navy vessel, some other naval vessel. I just had a port call. I'm coming out to sea and I have a desperate bridge to bridge call right on the on the radio from one of these stranded seafarers that says help me i've been stuck here for 4 years i want off this ship what immediately jumps out to you as some of the questions that that co needs to answer before they decide to take or not take any action the sort of standard staff answer to that sort of question is that uh, the decision is not the decision of a legad. It's not the decision of the commanding officer in many ways. It's got. I mean, that is. We're, we're talking here about a diplomatic political issue, and a diplomatic and political situation. Because if a vessel, if a warship, for example, is exiting a foreign port, um, which presumably it's had dip clear in order to enter, um, then there are certain international um, procedures that have to be followed, and a and a and a, and a, a call for some sort of action like that would clearly go rapidly up the chain of command and become a political nation-to-nation issue. Uh, I've no doubt about that. I mean, it really is, we're we're dealing with issues here that are clearly, there are legal issues here, of course, and David and I are familiar with the law, but there are also political and uh, diplomatic issues that also have to be dealt with. And it, it requires states to look very clearly into this whole problem not just at the law, but under the, uh, but but look also at what they politically and diplomatically feel they're under some sort of moral obligation to do in order to resolve some of these very challenging situations. Um, and the advocacy process uh, for human rights at sea is to, is to make this sort of problem, um, uh, make make those in positions of political responsibility aware of what sorts of issues c- can come up. And what they might care to, what they what they may choose to do to try and sort them out. It's not just a legal problem; it's a political, it's a diplomatic problem. Uh, we're we're operating in an international environment. The oceans are profoundly international, um, and and that's something I could come back to and say that, you know, I, I would like to see. Um, the, I mean, one of the things that, that I have changed my mind about significantly since I've been working on this sort of subject and subsequent to my naval service was that whereas before I was a, an advocate and a, a sympathizer to the notion of uh, the freedom of the seas and high seas freedoms, uh, I am now challenging that and coming up against a lot of criticism from my former naval colleagues and I would certainly come up with uh, criticism from the United States Navy if I were to say that we need to stop the notion, uh, the, the prevailing notion of the freedom of the seas and start talking about uh, the law, safe, secure and lawful seas. And the two things are not entirely incompatible, uh, but there needs, to be a, there needs to be a shift from what I call mare liberum towards mare legitimum, from, from free seas to lawful seas. Um, and that will require really significant state action. And I, I'm be pessimistic and say that I don't think I'll see it in my lifetime. Well, S- Stephen, that is certainly a conversation I would love to have with you at some point. But David, I want to give you a chance to jump in here and, and, and take a swing at that last question. Yeah. So in terms of your scenario, let's look at the tactical level that you're on your 
warship, uh, you've come across this issue. Um, you're may well be still inside territorial waters, therefore it's the coastal state's responsibility. It's a Channel 16 call, it's a harbour master call, um, and it's a flag state responsibility. That the primacy of the jurisdiction, obviously within the territorial waters, will be the coastal state. But let's say it's an outer anchorage, let's say you're 40 nautical miles actually offshore, as we see in the likes of um, many of the Gulf states, for example, um, and you're at anchor there, um, you then have the primacy of the, the flag state. Um, for me, it would be a command decision. Is, it, uh, is there an immediate threat to life? Is there a human rights uh, um, angle to this, which of course comes to, to, to the right to life, security and liberty of the person? Um, and actually, it would be a command call of whether or not you decided, if you're outside territorial waters, whether or not that uh, the command wanted to put a, a rib across to alleviate the immediate suffering whilst a dip tail was sent into um, the embassy, for example, into the NATO shipping centre, which, of course, has got a very good um, maritime industry liaison team there and, and requesting that there is a flag state intervention. Um, but, of course, it will go as far as the command is happy with on board um, that warship and indeed the legal advisor if they are on that warship because usually they're not forward deployed on a uh, on a vessel uh, per se um, but if there is a legad uh, either on board or close by is is the comfort level of that legad's advice um, which is erring more on the moral and procedural um, angle um, I, I mean you could class it as a, a safety of life at sea matter um, but again, and I'm looking through the human rights lens, uh, again, for me, it would fall also into a, a moral responsibility of um, seeing something but doing nothing. Yeah, I, I think the, the reason I raise that hypothetical is just to kind of point out that the issue is much larger than sending boats out to rescue the stranded seafarers. There's a very, very complex interplay between international law, policy decisions, diplomacy and business practices, and not to mention um, the rights of that seafarer to their wages and uh, being held at stake as well. So I wonder, much like a lot of the other issues we've discussed so far, a lot of this comes down to national regulations, legislation pertaining to either the, the vessel itself or to the, the coastal waters of that coastal state. Have you seen anyone doing this well as it come, as far as it goes to protecting the rights of stranded seafarers within their territorial waters? The latest piece of work we've been doing has been both with uh, New Zealand and Australia, and that is about securing seafarers' um, onshore welfare facilities and the sustainable funding from that through what we call a maritime levy, i.e. every time a vessel goes uh, into a port, they pay a levy to, to the government in, in New Zealand. It's between two and 3,000 uh, US dollars per vessel. And of that, um, some money is apportioned to seafarer welfare. Now, um, in last year, we alongside the New Zealand Seafarer Welfare's board, Welfare Board, managed to achieve a real precedent, um, first time globally, of a change in primary legislation, which means that there is a positive requirement in New Zealand primary legislation law of their Maritime Transport Act to allocate some of the funds of the maritime levy to seafarer welfare. The so what from all of this is that we're seeing both New Zealand and uh, Australia seem to be following on, um, taking a real focus in the welfare of, of commercial seafarers and indeed fishers, 
within their ports and under their port welfare committees um, under the Maritime Labour Convention 2006. Um, we've also seen uh, in terms of enforcement, um, you know, I, I will go back to the US example of the, the US Coast Guard in particular um, and the ability to enforce and also the engagement of um, federal agencies such as the FBI in um, investigating crimes on board cruise ships, for example. Um, these are really good examples. Um, same uh, as we're seeing in Japan um, and also Taiwan. But I, I'm sure there are many, many other states who would be jumping up and down at this stage and saying, you know, we have very good standards as well. But just within our most recent experience within the organization, those have been our best examples. Mm, really fascinating and encouraging. I will say, though, it is is probably much easier for governments to justify the type of levies that you're mentioning, two, three thousand US dollars per transit in and out of a port. I'm sure that is much easier to get by with when the economy is humming along and shipping rates are very low in a sustained period of inflation globally, where shipping costs have gone through the roof and it's uh, increasing the prices of uh, goods worldwide. I suspect that this creates a lot of new challenges or forces acting against uh, these types of levies. Have you seen uh, recently with the current economic situation, any challenges, uh, unique challenges to getting these types of laws passed that are the result of inflation and supply chain problems that we're all experiencing right now? Uh, actually, no, quite the opposite. Uh, one of the uh, positives within, uh, one of the positives following the COVID pandemic has been the rates, the shipping rates, the box rates, the freight rates have gone through the roof. You've got, you know, an ISO container that might have been um, sold for movement around about five thousand US dollars, going up to twenty-two thousand US dollars for one container. The so what from this is that actually the shipping industry, particularly on the container side, has made billions not millions, billions of dollars of profit and is awash with money. So much so that you see the carrier such as MSC announcing in the last 48 hours that like Maersk, they're setting up um, air freight services. Um, and therefore, when we circle back to the issue of getting legislation passed um, using maritime levies, the legislation is not hard to pass. It was seven to eight words that were changed in New Zealand legislation. It's just the political will to do it within the coastal state. The maritime levy, really, we don't see an issue because the levy is being paid to the government by the carriers. The carriers are making enormous amounts of money. Two to three thousand US dollars is not a lot of money in a box ship that might have 20,000 containers on it. So um, actually, the issue is one that there, sh there should be sustainable funding for all seafarers globally and fishers in terms of welfare. Well, that's surprising and encouraging. So it seems like that, that, that those types of funds are actually getting lost into the larger dollar values that are being exchanged right now. And so it's, it's actually helping to encourage those types of activities because it's easier to hide. Not hide, but it's easier to kind of tuck in there uh, along with a, a lot of other rising costs. That's quite fascinating. I realize we've been recording for uh, quite some time now. Uh, there's, <laughs> Having talked to both of you in the past, I know how uh, an hour can turn into four very quickly. The work you do at Human Rights at Sea is really that fascinating and, uh, and important and wide-ranging. Uh, but I would be quite remiss if I did not get to ask you about the work that you have going on in Ukraine right now. 
Before I move on, I want to timestamp this. It is the 27th of September. By the time this airs in January, things are certain to have changed. But just to give us kind of a historical context up till now, what has human rights been at sea been doing in Ukraine uh, since the conflict started? And what types of challenges have you encountered, are currently encountering uh, in that as that situation evolves? David? Yeah, so at the end of March, we went on the ground <clears throat> with a field mission um, into western Ukraine, uh, into Odessa, Chormorosk, um, Bilirod, um, around uh, Odessa to the port areas, um, linking up with uh, ship owners, ship managers, um, the welfare organisations, particularly Stella Maris, which is the, uh, the Vatican-based Roman Catholic uh, seafarers welfare organisation, um, and also speaking um, with uh, with military there as well. Um, we weren't on the ground for, for very long. Um, the whole mission was five days. Um, and at the time, uh, there was the positioning of the um, Russian amphibious group offshore, the shelling of the Bilirod um, uh, estuary. Uh, in fact, we two days after we crossed the the choke point bridge there that was hit by cruise missiles um, and, and we were there to um, take an initial assessment of what was happening within uh, the Odessa region for seafarers um, it was one of the in fact we were the only uh, welfare organization to externally come into the country though other welfare organizations um, uh, sorry with any organization well not a welfare organization but the only organization NGO from the maritime sector to go in, though the uh, the Ukrainian unions and Ukrainian-led welfare organisations still had some people uh, in the region. But there was a threat of the amphibious assault um, at the time, and we then exited uh, to the north out through Moldova. Um, we were due to go back three weeks ago, um, but uh, again, with the date stamp, people will understand that uh, that coincided with uh, the, the major push in the south uh, towards uh, Kherson um, and Mykoliv. Um, we've um, been working with the Ukrainian um, government and indeed the embassy in London, um, and we will take a view of what we're going to do um, in the future, um, but we, we won't disclose anything further. No, I completely understand. And, and, and like everything going on there right now, it is a, a, in constant flux. We just hope that you'll have the opportunity to come in and render some some much-needed assistance and take those assessments at some time in the future. So last question here before we wrap up. I, I'd, I'd like to get you to reflect on your careers. We went through your bios. We talked about your military history. And I want you to think back to some earlier points and think about what little bits of advice that you would give to those in, in the audience who are in similar situations that that you have been in the past and who perhaps maybe just embarking on, on their careers. I just want to frame the question in the context of, of your military service. How does the work that you're doing now compare with the prior experiences that you had during your time in the military? Uh, yes, I, I can do. It's an interesting question. I mean, my, it's a bit, somebody asked me the other day what, you know, whether or not I'd, how my career had panned out. And I, I, I see my career as one career. Now, 30-odd years of that was spent in uniform as a Royal Navy officer. Uh, but I've been very much involved in looking at the maritime and ocean governance and related issues ever since as an academic um, uh, uh, working in, in law and politics and international relations. So I've, 
I, I've sort of moved from being a, a sort of seagoing, tactically focused naval officer in the 1970s through uh, into policy jobs in and, and doctrinal jobs in the Ministry of Defence in in London and elsewhere. And now I'm an academic looking at these issues from a from a sort of theoretical academic point of view. The the it, it, so I've, I've I've run the whole gamut in many ways, um, and and it's it's been a fascinating literally fifty years because I I joined the service just over fifty years ago. Uh, uh, it's been fascinating from from day one. Uh, I've never been bored. Um, the the, the one thing that I've focused on, though, and, and very early as a, as a young officer under training in my first really international deployment, which was to the Indian Ocean and to the Far East uh, in a British destroyer, uh, we on that on that deployment, we we conducted um, uh, we, we were enforcing a UN maritime embargo off uh, Mozambique associated with the independence independent the illegal independence declaration in Rhodesia now Zimbabwe um, and so I very early came across the 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 importance of law the, uh, the the sort of merging of law legal and political considerations um, and that's what really triggered my interest in uh, maritime operational law and it's why I'm doing what I'm doing now I mean I can trace a narrative but I don't want to bore you and your your listeners uh, with with my career development it's it, it my my principal piece of advice for what it is worth is that when you are a young officer doing your business at sea um, look at the legal framework for what you're doing consider the law and the politics of it all don't just look at the sheer demanding challenges of operating as a tactical officer at that sort of seagoing level uh, and try and glean as much as you can about how complex some of these issues are in terms of the, the tactical situation at sea and the policy implications and the longer term legal implications. It's a, it's a very, very challenging job that you're in um, as a career naval officer. Uh, you have lots of things to think about. That's what I focused on. I focused on the law very much, and, and I've, I've never regretted a moment of it. Certainly thoughtful advice. David, what advice would you give to people who are making this transition or thinking about making this transition or evolving, as Stephen put it, from one career into the next, whether in academia or in the nonprofit sphere such as yourself? Well, it might sound trite, but uh, that uh, great quote that uh, the only easy day was yesterday is absolutely, absolutely right. Um, I think you have to have a huge amount of humility and avoid any arrogance of what you've done previously. And you may have been, you know, a, a senior officer, a senior enlisted who has a huge amount of operational experience. But as I found um, going into what my wife would term the real world, um, the first question I was asked at most interviews is how much money did you make last year? Um, that can be quite disillusioning. And I think you need to um, really surround yourself by um, people who've already gone through the process themselves and transitioned and, and take their advice. But you, you highlighted that earlier question about what does service bring? Um, and I think service is critical to your transition of, of what you've learned in the service 
Um, for me, um, and forgive me, I'll pull out the values, the Royal Marine values of excellence, integrity, self-discipline and humility. That is absolutely key to taking on your next roles uh, moving out. Uh, and that, that moral courage um, to objectively challenge, um, and particularly in, if you go into the NGO world and the human rights world, um, you need to be disciplined, you need to have a professional approach, and you need to be diplomatic. So I suppose ultimately the service has given me the tenacity to continue um, because circling back to that first point, the only easy day was certainly yesterday. Well, you've certainly given us a lot to think about, um, a lot of inspiring words and uh, life experience learned over the course of two incredible careers so far. And so I have to ask, what is next for each of you? What's on the radar that you are excited about, Stephen? Uh, well, that's very simple for me to answer, given my age. It's to avoid retirement for as long as possible. <laughs> well, you're you're doing I have well. No wish to, I have no wish to sit at home pruning my roses. I will carry on doing what I'm doing for as long as I possibly can. And I use our late Queen, Her Majesty's example, as my inspiration. So if I'm still going at 96, I'll be very, very happy with myself. Of course, not to mention you also have the, the, the very important uh, responsibility of speaking at the uh, upcoming conference on operational maritime law, where we are going to be pleased to, to learn more from you. David, what about you? What's next? It is to take uh, human rights at sea into foundation status, um, to grow it, uh, to, to build it further, and really to build upon the success of the Geneva Declaration. Um, there, there's a lot more to be done, um, but certainly... If we can achieve the Geneva Declaration into the Human Rights Council that is state-led um, and um, we also are, have access to the UN, which may well be forthcoming in the future as an organisation, um, then those are my immediate uh, next steps. Other than that, um, finding enough time to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> well, I can't help you with the sleep, but I, I certainly can help promote Human Rights at Sea and the wonderful work you're doing uh, David, if people want to learn more about this organiz your organization or donate to the cause or follow you online, uh, how can they do it? Give us, some, uh, give us some instructions here, some marching orders. It's very simple. Pick up your phone, type in those four words, human rights, see into any search engine. Uh, it'll take you straight to our website and the donate button, if you are um, that generous, uh, which would be fantastic, uh, is, is on the front page. Um, and if there's only ever one page you ever look at, it's the news feed, um, because that really gives you the focus of what we're doing on a, a, on a daily basis. Yeah, I will certainly put a plug in for that as well. That is tremendously helpful to stay up to date with the goings on uh, of human rights at sea, both the organization and uh, the broader uh, topic at large. Gentlemen, I could sit here and chat with you all day, but unfortunately, you don't have time for that. So <laughs> we have to end it there. Thank you so much for the time that you were able to give us. And I look forward to speaking with you both again very soon. Thank you very much. The COE CSW is a leading NATO think and do tank focused on enhancing military capabilities to contend with the security challenges posed in the world's confined and shallow waters. As a reminder, the views expressed in this podcast are solely the speaker's own and do not reflect the positions of NATO, the COECSW, or any of the institutions to which the participants belong. <laughs>